So I'm going to be talking today about home and what it is to be home and kind of what that means. And um, this time of year, there's a lot of stuff around about coming home, coming home for Christmas. And all across the country and the world, people are coming home to have Christmas. But kind of the question that needs to be asked is actually, what is home? Is it, is it where you live? Is it where your parents live? Like, what is home? Um, and to kind of illustrate that, when I was in Canada, um, we lived in a house for, I was in Canada for five months, and we lived most of the time in a house in a town called Herbert. And when we first got there, when we talked about home, we'd always be talking about our homes in England, and we'd be like, oh, I'm excited for sausage and mash when we get home, and be talking about um, England. But then, um, a couple of weeks after we got used to living there, when we were at church or something, we'd be like, oh, do you want to go home? Of course, we weren't talking about England, we were talking about the home in Herbert. So to differentiate, we started a policy that we would use home as Herbert and home home as England. But then things got a bit more tricky when we moved to another place for a temporary amount of time, um, to a cabin um, up where we stayed for a couple of weeks to do some mountain climbing and stuff. And when we were up the mountain, when we decided to go home, that was talking about the cabin, so we became home, 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 and home, 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 which was England. So it kind of does raise this question of actually what is home? And I'm going to show a video um, now, which was made by the Christian Union at Oxford University, um, which kind of talks about this.
So it kind of raised questions that video of what what is home like. She talked about being known, being being loved, being safe, being comfortable, and kind of to explore this question. Over the past week or so, I've been asking random people on my train journeys around Totnes, uh, just throughout what I was doing in life, asking random people what how they defined home to be, whether it was in a literal sense or in a more spiritual, wider sense, what they felt home was. Um, and these are some of the answers that I have. Safety. Home is safety. Somewhere comfortable. Somewhere you can return. Family. Warmth. Belonging. A feeling. Being around a certain person. Like, there was overwhelmingly just a sense of people understood something about what home was, what it meant to be home. Um, and another question that I asked people was, um, what as humanity, as humans, are we all searching for? What, obviously it's a fairly good question, and I got some fairly varied answers. Um, but everyone came up with these deep desires, except from one person, who was a microbiologist, who decided that our only only need was to procreate for the survival of the species. Um, and we had no other desires other than that. Um, but other than that, um, the answers to the questions were overwhelmingly happiness. Happiness was a thing that cropped up again and again. What are we all searching for? These are non-Christian people, people I've met on the train, whatever. They're happiness, love, money, good relationships, understanding, acceptance. And one guy said home, which fitted quite well with my talk. Um, but actually, that is what we're searching for. The, the universal search that we have as humans is for belonging, for love, for happiness, and for home, which is safety, which is comfort, which is belonging, which is being known and being, being loved. Um, Brené Brown, who is an amazing psychologist, um, she's an amazing public speaker as well, and she's written various books, um, she particularly focuses on shame and stuff like that, but she said this. Um, a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically and spiritually wired to love, to be loved and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we're meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others and we get sick. We have this deep need to love and to belong that is fundamentally part of our DNA as humans. And actually, when, when thinking about the theme of home um, and looking through the Bible, what I see through, through the whole Bible is the, the massive theme of God dwelling with his people. Like, that's what the Bible can be summarised in, in the sentence, is God making his home with his people. Um, and you see that all through scripture. And actually, I'm going to look at the very beginning of Adam and Eve, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Um, and there's something, something in theology called the rule of first mention, which is uh, where something is mentioned first in the Bible is pretty important, and it sets out a kind of pattern for where look in the context for where it's talked about in the rest of scripture. So looking at Adam and Eve, 
um, as the first humans, we can learn a lot about humanity in general. Um, so, if we go to Genesis 2 verse 9, so God's created Adam and Eve and he's made this beautiful garden and then says that out of the ground the Lord, Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant and good to the sight and good for food. And then the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge and good of it, good, uh, the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. So God's made this garden and it's got loads of trees and all of them were pleasant to the sight and good for food. All of them were. And then he mentions these two trees in particular, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Okay, and then verse 16 it says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the word, so it's the tree that they're not allowed to eat from is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the actual word for knowledge in the original language is more of an experiential knowledge. It actually means to experience good and evil. It's the same word they use for describing when two people sleep together. It describes an intimacy of really knowing good and evil, experiencing good and evil. And then God says, if you eat this, you will die. He gives such explicit warning um, of what will happen. And the kind of thing that you have to think about is, well, why did God put a tree like that in the garden? Like, it's meant to be a good place. Why did he put that there? But actually, for free will to exist, he had to put the tree there. Because God doesn't want to remove the free will of his kids. He doesn't want people contained in a box where they, their only option is to be good. Um, Yeah, but actually, the tree is called the tree of knowledge, um, knowledge of good and evil. But actually, there is a big difference between <laughs> knowledge and wisdom. Um, I presume that most of you, at some point in your lives, have met someone who is very knowledgeable, but not very wise. <laughs> and actually, that, that shows that there is a big difference between the two. Um, and I don't... I don't believe, actually, that God was wanting to withhold wisdom from Eve and Adam. Um, I believe that, actually, God um, had planned to, planned to give her wisdom, but it was planned to be walked out with her as a father and a child and be unfolded, because something could be perfect and yet unfolding, and that God wasn't someone who was trying to withhold her, her wisdom at all. Um, but... Eve, it says that she wanted to be wise. She saw this tree of knowledge and good and evil and she thought it would make her wise. And she wanted to be like God. But the thing is that scripture says that she was already like God. That God had made her in his image, in his likeness. So Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God, God said that in this day you will die. But they didn't. They didn't just all of a sudden wilt and fall into dust. They didn't just die. But actually, what they got was exactly what it said on the tin. They got the knowledge of good and evil, experiencing good and evil. See, if we look at Genesis 3, um, 
we can see the curse that's then given, that, that because they've done this stuff, God comes up with this curse to, uh, to punish them, if, if you look at it like that. Um, and first of all, you see Satan is made to be very dependent on us. But actually, Genesis, and he talks about um, life being struggle and pain for humanity from this point on. Um, but actually, this isn't stuff that God just all of a sudden made up with, thought, hmm, what punishment can I give them? Like, what, what, what shall I give them as a punishment for being bad? And just made this stuff up and was like, you now have to do this, life will be struggle and pain. Actually, what we read in Genesis 3 is a prophetic patterning out of what it looks like to walk in the knowledge, in the experience of good and evil, and of what it is to walk in independence from that that is life. And it's going to look like struggle, and it's going to look like pain. And that's what God's saying. Actually, independence for me is going to look like struggle, and it's going to look like pain. And then, if we read later on, God honours their free will, and he clothes them, which I think is so beautiful. They experience shame. Because of this, they realise they're naked, experience shame, so God clothes them, which I think is so beautiful. Another question um, I was discussing with someone is, why couldn't they just... So they've eaten from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the tree of death. Um, why couldn't they just run across and take something from the tree of life to compensate? Like, to balance out. Surely, like, it's the tree of life, it will work. But actually, the reason God didn't let them do that, I believe, is because doing that would reinforce a mindset that said, I can save myself, I can attain, rescue myself from, from what I've done, from my brokenness. I can, and it would create that mindset in humanity, and that actually isn't what God wanted. So we, we see patterned out this, this human desire for independence, to decide what is right and what is wrong for ourselves, and, and to become our own gods, to become our own gods. But the truth is that being our own gods feels like death. Because instead of God upholding our worth, our value and our humanity, we have to try and do that for ourselves. And we weren't ever made to do that. So we start functioning out of our original design. So pain and struggle start to occur. See, we were made to receive love. We were, we were made as humans to receive love. But the thing is that we are, because of this, we, we're no longer connected to the one who is love. So we have to get this love for ourselves. And then as humans, we start to perform. We start to fight over love. We start to market ourselves. And the cry of humanity is, give me love. Give me love. You can see it all around you. On social media, people, you can, if you just look behind, you can see the heart cry is, give me love of humanity. Notice me. See me. See, and the thing is that we agree with non-Christians about the problem. All the people I spoke to, most of them said we were searching for love. 
They got that there was a lack of love in this world. They got that that was something that we intrinsically need and we totally agree with the world about the problem and they totally see it. In fact, we need belonging and acceptance and love. And that's some really useful common ground, actually. And then what happens in this, in this way of living, we end up giving love out to get love back. And love itself becomes curved in. So you give love out, and, and if someone doesn't give it back to you, then you cut them off. Why are they doing that? And we try to be nice to people. We try to be good at our jobs. We try to be the best. We try to be beautiful. We try to be everything that we can so that we will get love. And then, but love is then given out with so many strings attached. Yeah. See, we, because we were made for dependence on God and we chose independence, the ironic thing is, in, in independence, we become woefully dependent on other people to feed us love, to give us love, to give us affirmation. And the truth is that although it may help for a little time, it, it doesn't satisfy. It can't be upheld. S say if, if I use someone that I love and they give me value and worth and tell me I'm great and it that's where I get my value and worth from. What if one day they forget? What if one day they don't do it? Actually, it's really fragile because what is attained by the praises of man has to be sustained and upheld by the praises of man. And man was never made to do that. And we build these structures and the bigger the structures, the more it can crumble. There's a quote from Jim Carrey and he said, Okay, it's kind of cut it off the screen. Um, but I wish that everyone could be rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that it, they can see that it's not the answer. See, it doesn't satisfy. No matter how much love we get, and relationships are great. Human relationships, we were designed for interdependence. That's in God's pattern, but there's more. See... In our, in our giving away love, if someone does something to break that, to, they don't give it back. First of all, what we do is we're like, they suck. They are awful. Why would they do that? They are awful, awful people, and we cut them off. And then, after a little while, you start to blame yourself. Maybe it was something that I did. Maybe I wasn't good enough. Maybe I wasn't pretty enough. Maybe I didn't, whatever. And then, self-hatred takes root. And it comes, they, they rejected me, they didn't like me because deep down I, I'm worthless. I don't like myself. I do this to people. I push them away because I don't like myself. And be because self-hatred takes roots, root, we end up selling ourselves for less. We give our bodies away. See, there is a poverty of actual worth and value in society today. There is a poverty of actual worth and value. And sin and all the rest of it is pretty much just a symptom of this. See, evil in the world 
isn't a problem for Christians. It's not a stumbling block for Christians, something they're going to get really caught up over, because evil is the very problem that Jesus came to solve. But this is it. This, this need for love, this striving, this aching, this loneliness is what death looks like. In this day, if you eat this, you will die. This is what death looks like, being our own gods. Trying to be known and trying to be loved. Tim Keller says this. To be loved, but not known. is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. See, if we want life, we need to lean into the one who is life. If we want love, we need to lean into the one who is love. And if we want truth, we need to lean into the one who is truth. How we were created to be in our very nature in the first place. But the thing is that humanity was the ones who stepped into this. We stepped into this death, this independence. So humanity has to be the ones to step out, right? And that is why Jesus took on full humanity. He had to be fully human so that he could take this on and step out of it. And then God's redemption, his rescue plan from the beginning was shed blood in order to cover this, in order to adopt and redeem us back to the one who is life. And the solution isn't independence, it's, it's dependence on the right one. And God upholds our humanity and he gives us value and worth and, and gives us life and belonging. Um, something that's really interesting is if you look at, in the Old Testament, at the name meanings through from Adam, the genealogy from Adam through to Noah, um, and what the names mean. So, for example, um, Adam means man. And then if we go through to Noah, Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalah means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech, the despairing. Noah, rest or comfort. And here we have the gospel from the beginning. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching, and his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. Amen. This is the gospel in the beginning, using the names, like God has had this plan all along of redeeming us. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. It sucks, but the blessed God shall come down teaching and his death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort 
And there is where we find it. We find rest, we find comfort, and we find home in Jesus. When, when thinking about the theme of home, the story that first pops to mind is the prodigal son. So we're going to look at that now. Um, it's in Luke 15, 11. If you want to look at it in your own Bibles, it's also on the screen. I'm, and I'm going to read it out. To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now, before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there, he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick! Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. And he has returned to life. He was lost. But now he is found. And so the party began. So this, this story is often called the prodigal Son, um, the word prodigal meaning wasteful and extravagant, referring to how the son blundered everything. Um, but actually, I've, I've heard quite a few people saying that this story should actually be called the, the prodigal father, the wasteful and extravagant father, because that's how, how the father was in his love. He was wasteful and he was extravagant in his love for his son. See, what we see in this story is a son coming up and saying, Father, I wish you were dead, and I want what you have now. Which is pretty harsh. And actually how the normal Jewish father would react would be like, no, like, and put him back in his place. But actually, the father honoured him choosing independence. And he split everything. And then... 
he goes off and, and makes use of the money um, and there's a famine that sweeps the land. Interestingly, um, I watched a video not that long ago that showed different groups of people in different countries summarising this story. Um, and so when the British and the Americans were asked to summarise the story, they said, oh, this son goes off, he wastes all his money on prostitutes and whatever, runs out of money and comes back. Um, but people from Russia and Africa said something completely different. They said, this guy goes off um, with this money and then there's a famine and he runs out of money and he comes back. And they didn't even mention that he wasted the money and, and the Americans, the British, didn't even mention that there's a famine because we can't relate to the famine. But actually, the people in Africa and Russia can relate to famine. And so they saw that side of it. Anyway, so there's this famine, and he ends up in this really broken place, feeding, feeding pigs, which was the lowest of the low jobs. Um, and he plans this speech, this speech of all speeches that is going to get him back into, back into living a reasonable life, being a servant. Um, and he, he starts to walk back, but then it says that the father sees him when he was a long way off. He was looking, he was waiting for his son to return home, and then he ran to him. And many of you know this, but in, in those days, especially for a Jewish head of household, it would have been extremely shameful to show their legs. They would have worn long dress that went down to his ankles. But actually, to be able to run to him, he would have hitched up his skirt and he would have ran, and it would have been a really shameful act. It would have been brought shame on the whole household. And that is what he did, because he was so overcome with joy and excitement for seeing this son. He bore shame upon himself and ran to the son. And he didn't really wait for him to finish his speech, did he? Or give him the silent treatment or be angry with him like you would expect. Like, if your son went off and did this, you would be angry. That's... But actually, how he reacts is so amazing. First of all, he gives him a robe. He, the finest robe. He clothed him. He clothed him. And actually, that reminds me of Eden, where the father clothed them, even though they chose independence. Because that's what he's like. And this clothing was, was a symbol of complete love and acceptance and protection and then he gave him a ring and this ring was a symbol of inheritance being restored of, of, of affection of saying you're my son you're my son and then he put sandals on his feet see only only the slaves were the ones who didn't wear shoes and he was saying first of all that you're my son you're not, I don't want you to be a slave, I want you to be my son. But also, part of the reason slaves wore no shoes was so they didn't run away. Um, and actually, it's giving him freedom to walk away again. Because he's a son and not a slave. And it finishes by saying, You were dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. And that is the gospel. We've been in a living death, walking around, and it feels like death, but now we're alive. We were lost, looking for belonging, looking for acceptance, 
but now we are found. And we are clothed by the Father in protection, in love and acceptance. And we're restored to having our value upheld by the Father. And he brings us belonging. He brings us safety. He brings us joy and he brings us home. And it's so easy to fall into thinking that we need to get ourselves better to sort ourselves out before returning to the Father. Because we somehow believe that separation from his love, not allowing him to love me, will transform me and make me better more than his love does. But actually this is what the Father is like when we come home to him. And this story is really, really powerful to talk with people about. If you ever get into a good conversation and want to explain the gospel, I'd say this story is so powerful to use in that context. Um, there was a guy, when we were um, on mission in a First Nations Reserve in Canada, um, there was a guy out on his balcony porch smoking, and he had these really cute puppies. And so we were playing with his puppies, um, and then he was kind of shouting things to us, and we were trying to reply, but it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that he was very hard of hearing and couldn't really understand. So he called us up, and we went up, and we went and sat with him in his house. We're kind of shouting at him, and um, yeah, but anyway, so we asked him if we could pray for his ears, because um, he obviously couldn't hear very well at all. Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, he was really happy about us doing that, and so we prayed, and oh, before we prayed, we tried whispering to see if he could hear us. We just thought we'd test it out. We'd be like, whisper, whisper, whisper. He hadn't a clue that we were talking. Um, so we, we prayed for his ears. We asked Jesus to heal them. And then we tried whispering again. And he could hear our whispers. Wow. And his, his ears were at least partially opened up, which was so cool to hear. There was massive improvement in his hearing when we prayed. Um, and then I thought, while we're here, so I said to him, I thought we'd make the most of it while we're there. So I said to him, actually, we're, we're practicing hearing God's voice. Can we practice with you? And he was like, yeah, sure. Um, and then as soon as I said that, my friend Tommy got a word pop into his head. And he was like, so I kind of, I kind of, I might be wrong, but I kind of feel like God's saying that you have a son, a son that you're really worried about. And he's, he's kind of walked away and... Um, He's been doing some stuff that you, makes you really worried about him and you really want to restore that relationship um, with your son. But you, yeah, you're just so worried and God knows how you feel. And this guy was like, yeah, like that, that's exactly what's going on. Like my son, my son's gone off and he's done all this stuff and I haven't seen him in ages. But actually he's coming tomorrow to collect some more of his stuff. And actually I'd love it if you could pray for me about that. So we prayed for him about this. And then... We shared with him this story about the prodigal son. And the guy was so overcome with, with how the father reacted to the son. And, and about how the father reacts to him. And he was just overcome with the affection of, of Jesus. Um, and it's, it's really powerful. And I think this, this story really has such an invitation, like an invitation to come home, to come home and, and let the Father 
pour out his affirmation on you, to pour his love on you. And for some of you here, it might be that you've never known that, that you've never known what it's like to be home with God, to be completely accepted by the Father. And you know that actually that's something you really want, that deep down there's this longing, there's this search for belonging that you know you're not going to fill every, any other way and, and it's time. You just want to come home. You just want to run home. And for others of you, it, you, you don't really even, there wasn't a conscious walking away. It wasn't like you decided to be disobedient and walk away. But maybe life's just been busy recently. Maybe you've just had a lot of stuff going on and you kind of just looked up and been like, I'm not at home anymore. Where? Like, I am not receiving the Father's love and affirmation over me. And you just want to come home again. And um, if the worship band come up in a minute, I'm going to give an opportunity. I'm going to close in prayer, but there'll be people at the spiral staircases from the prayer ministry team. If you feel that you want to come home to Jesus for the first time or for the thousandth time, um, that you just want fresh revelation of his love. Because his, his love and his home is where we know so tangibly and so real, so yeah, in such a real way, how much we belong and how much he loves and delights in us. And if you want fresh revelation of that, then go up for prayer as well. There are closing prayer and if the worship band would like to. Yeah, Father, thank you. Thank you for the way that you made us. Thank you that we were made for dependence upon you. Thank you that you are the one who is love, who is life. Father, thank you that we are truly known. Father, the points where we don't even want to let anyone see us because deep down we don't like how we are. Father, you see that and you love us. We are so truly known by you, Jesus. and We're so deeply, deeply loved. And Father, I just ask for everyone in this room that you would take us into greater revelation of your love this week and over this season, Jesus, of, of spiritually coming home, of of the beautiful familiarity of this season, Father, that in that we would we would experience your embrace, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that we find home. We find home in you.